Hey everybody, welcome to another Two Crickets on a Thorn Tree, the smoothest glass of Amarula for your mind. I'm half of your host, Nicholas Lorimer, joined as ever on this sweltering, hot, muggy, awful spring day by Mr. Gabriel Krauser. What a beautiful day. What a let me tell you, stunner. Let me tell you about one of the the very good things that's happened during this heat wave that we've had up in the uh, the north of the country. Uh, and that's that I've made many converts to my church of the worst part of the Gauteng season, the weather in, in Gauteng, is that bit of spring from when it gets hot until the rain. This has long been held as my worst part of the year. You get allergies. It's really hot. It's sometimes still cold during the night. And it's just so dry and uh, sweltering until that first October rain comes. And then it's lovely. That's when summer begins, in my mind. And I've made You're so many converts during the heat wave to that church. Big baby, big, <laughs> big sweaty baby, a big burpy sweaty baby. <laughs> this is this is the best time. I'll tell you why. Look, it sucks for people with hay fever, but honestly, they should have been exposed to more germs when they were kids. Uh, say no to baby lockdown. My, let the, my, let parents, the my parents left me in the filth and the dirt to pick up things, and I'm still somehow like this. Yeah, it's because he's, I don't know, somewhere in your teenagers. Clearly, the dirt was too games. clean wherever I was left. <laughs> so, computer games, you need to keep exposing yourself to that dirt until you're, you're a proper grown up. I think the amazing thing about it is that the jacarandas have come out. I. Elena, Elena and I have been climbing the hills by vehicle and by foot to look over the city and crawling through the boulevards under these purple blankets, over these purple carpets, look, through I, these I boulevards. Those things are beautiful. And when the rain comes, it's wonderful, but then it starts, the droplets suck down the jacarandas and, it, and the death begins. So, so jacarandas are beautiful, but you know what's also beautiful? It's a photo of jacarandas. <laughs> yeah, more beautiful. Opening the window as you turning off the car and cruising over the carpet and hearing the little pop, 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 pop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's uh, hashtag just South African things. Anyway, um, with that being said, uh, okay, so we don't I, we don't see we missed, eye to eye on that, but we do see eye to eye on something else. Oh yeah, we missed last week. Yeah, we did miss last week because I was camping in Limpopo, which was hot but lovely. Um, I, I maintain my um, my absolute adoration for Limpopo as one of the best provinces in the country. It's a very unique flavor because in a lot of ways it's also terrible, but it's also great. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. I'm, I was jealous. I had, a, I had a terrible weekend. A very close friend of mine passed away. He, uh, he's been... It's a strange one because he's been battling very heavy cancer for like at least 12 years. And Oof, that's a very long time to fight, hey? And he was doing well. You know, he's been on death's door and we've all been like, oh, it's tickets now. And, but he was doing so well now. And it just, so it was like somehow such a shock. Anyway, um, don't talk about that. Rather talk about, mm. let's, come, let's talk about politics. When <laughs> oh, yes, much much happier. Um, yeah, so we've been personal life. <laughs> we, yeah, we've been we've been kind of shaking our heads in in sort of confusion and horror at what's been going on in the UK, and just what an utter disaster. 
uh, Truss's run at at uh, at PM has been so far. Um, yeah. So, so the news it, is just, that she just yeah. fired or caused to resign or whatever. Uh, Kwateng, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, the yes. Finance Minister, and I thought it. Just, I mean, you're confused, dude. I'm kind of leaning into the sadism of this because <laughs> I I feel very. I told you so. Um, one of my colleagues said, "Trust will never get rid of Kwateng," and right. it's like, "Well, never say never, dude." Um, yeah, and- I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like this is this is what's been so shocking about this, right? So, uh, uh, trust does these controversial um, sort of changes to the budget. Okay, fair enough. You know, you like those, you don't like those, you think those are good policy, bad policy, unfunded the, tax cuts. Yeah, right. The only thing <laughs> that you can you can you can do to 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 uh, take away all the benefits of that policy change, but keep all of the negatives is to do a sudden shocking U-turn after like a week of pressure. Yeah. Which is what she did in the most place. Yeah, but let's, yeah, let's, let's slow down because I think it's, it's, it really is worth noting that the, the mini budget, the notorious mini budget that came out a couple of weeks ago immediately triggered a very negative reaction. The pound started getting to the same level as the dollar. The dollar was strengthening, strengthening, but that was like, from the back of the envelope, that looked like 10% of it. Like 90% of the pound is just taking a thumping. And um, and, the, and the reason was that there were there were about, let's say, 10 headline things that the mini-budget was doing. Some of it is symbolically interesting, but not particularly important, like um, lifting the cap on bonuses that can go to bankers. Yeah, so, right. Why do I say that's symbolic? Because every I know people in London banking – uh, and in and in uh, New York and in Paris and Frankfurt, uh, what I'm told is that it hasn't really been a big problem. It means, you know, instead of getting paid £200,000 and getting a bonus uh, of, you know, now you're getting paid £200,000 and you're getting a bonus of £200,000, whereas before you would have been paid £120,000 and a bonus of this and that of 400,000 pounds in a good year and of like 50,000 pounds in a bad year. It, it's a little bit disturbing in the sense that from an employer's perspective and an employee's perspective, you like the idea that you could suddenly get a 4X or 5X bonus. But what I'm told is that external benefits and the ability to, for example, get like options in trade uh, shares effectively and the options to have a bonus holdover to your reappointment in a, in another jurisdiction and the fact that and the kind of revolving doorway in which bankers don't usually stay on the same level so that your bonus can just become part of a sign up to a, a promotion in other words i'm not getting a bonus but i'm getting a slight title change at the end of the year and with that i get the 400,000 pounds if it is a good year but it's just a it's just a promotion incentive rather than a, uh, an end of your uh, reward right. for <clears throat> right right these dudes invented if you know what a cd if you know what a collateralized debt obligation is <laughs> and you know how to relate a collateralized debt obligation to um, a multi-layered uh, collateralized debt obligation so that you have a collateralized debt obligation squared 
you know, and 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 that itself is already three degrees of removal away from the sort of moral hazard, uh, state subsidized mortgage house loan debts that you know created the global financial crisis. The dudes running these banks are not going to be blocked by a little paper wall. They know how to make things that don't make sense to anyone who isn't really right. willing it, it, to the financial caveats and, and yeah 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 so anyway so 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 uh, as far as i can tell it, it's it's not that it's nothing at all it obviously is simpler not to have to use strange um nomenclature to achieve the same effect and it's obviously slightly less of a headache if you're sitting with you know uh, head offices in hong kong shanghai paris frankfurt new york uh, it's nice to just have like a cut and dried, straightforward thing that cuts across all of it. But anyway, that's kind of a symbolic change. Then there was some serious good red tape cutting changes. And then there was the unfunded tax cut, which seems silly because you're in a high inflation environment. It's not the right time to go borrowing money. Right. Um, and yeah. it was only that change that, the sorry, was just about the YouTube. The idea is to grow right. out of it. And yeah, I mean, left, left wingers always say, look, we just give the poor money and we'll borrow that money because the poor will buy more stuff and that'll create more jobs and that'll create more economic activity and that'll create more tax revenues. And that way we'll get the money back. We can, we can, we'll borrow it from future earnings created by spending this money now. You know, it's like the idea, I'm going to, I'm going to make a thousand rand by buying an airplane ticket, uh, on a thousand rand discount. So I'm spending 11,000 rand instead of 12,000 rand. It's like, well, I don't know if you made a thousand rand there. <laughs> it sounds a little bit like you spent 12,000 rand and great. That's not as bad as spending 13,000, but you know, left-wingers always say that spending pays for itself. Uh, left-wing ideologues, not everyone on the left, but the ideologues and right-wing ideologues always say tax cuts pays for themselves. And if you look at the guys who won the Nobel prize in economics last year, uh, Part of the reason they won the prize is because they were like, let's answer these questions with data. And on the data, they're both ideologues are wrong. Yeah. Uh, uh, Kevin Williamson is pretty good, actually, on this point. So he's a pretty kind of right-wing libertarian guy. But uh, he makes the point that I think uh, it was studies on the Reagan tax cuts found that they paid for about 30% of themselves. Exactly. So there was some money back, but it really That's wasn't, what, you know, yeah. That, it's like... It yeah, exactly. It didn't, didn't cover the books entirely. And the same with the spend, and the same, I mean, South Africa is sitting with these grants. The big news of the week, I would say, you know, big risk alert, is that the SASA grant um, uh, means test is being lifted um, so that an extra 4 million odd people will be eligible for SASA grants. The COVID grants for, you know, working age people uh, that are healthy. And um, adding another 4 million people to that is um, oh, it's, it's, just, it's a difficult choice. Anyway, if you read, uh, go, go to Wits University. I've uh, been to their colloquia. You will find guys who say, no, this, pay, this is going to pay for itself because the poor guys are going to you know, stimulate. Right. A lot, of, lot of the minimum wage arguments revolve around this. It's like, no, we can just make the minimum wage whatever we want because it will come yeah. back. Anyway, so the and the, and you know the other point is that like 
some things you can do in a, in a low inflation environment that you can't do in a high inflation environment, especially if you've got a central bank that is trying to combat inflation by raising interest rates. It's just macroeconomics 101, very stupid. And I did feel irritated because in our circles, um, when that mini budget had just been passed, like I couldn't find anyone who was saying this is dumb uh, because there was such an enthusiasm for tax cuts. Uh, which in South Africa, South Africa clearly needs tax cuts, but like the UK is in a different place. Anyway, uh, it was done, it got punished. But here's the thing I'm trying to draw out. That idea, the tax cuts, that was dropped, I think, four days after the mini budget, the day after the Bank of England said, well, you know what we're going to do? We're going to flip in we're going to start buying back our own stocks. Like we're going to take this wonderful <laughs> sort of 1980s American genius idea of like, if a company is really doing, you know, badly, but wants to convince you that it's doing well, it'll just buy its own shares, which will increase the demand for the same quantity of shares, which is going to increase the price of the shares. Although now the money that's left is eating itself. Uh, so it's 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 cannibalism in the name of capitalism, <laughs> and it's the only thing worse than a company doing that. By the way, I mean there are actually reasonable moments for a company to do it, but for a country to do it is extremely desperate. Um, and they and they reverse that tax cut. Now the problem is, and sorry, and I just the, the thing I want to say, the, the thing I want to defend, is that I thought that it was hugely ungenerous for the Labour guys, the left-wingers, when that thing was reversed, not to say, well, congratulations on being reason-responsive and changing your mind in the face of pressure. Like, we always do this at the Institute. We always say we welcome yeah. the change when the change comes. This is, this is something that. that I think really is lacking, for the most part, from uh, modern political kind of toing and froing, is, is just a refusal to ever say, well done. Thank you for doing that. We're glad that you listened to reason. It's like you got to push the advantage. You then got to attack full force because it shows that the enemy is weak. And that doesn't, as we can see, add to a particularly... Because that's that's exactly what my point was, right? Uh, is that by going backwards, exactly. yeah. she, she, she got a lot of the negatives in that she came to look like a, a political fool who didn't know what she was doing, who bent under pressure, and she didn't get any of the potential benefits of, you know, looking resolute, looking like she was a committed ideologue with a clear plan and some different approach to things. And maybe, who knows, the economy would have turned out, you know, a year down the line in a better place than it was now, and then she could have claimed some sort of credit. But now it's like, well, everyone thinks you're a fool. And you're not getting the policy that you thought was going to work anyway. So no, I did. But on top of that, like you also hired this dude, Quateng, to be your finance minister, and it is you two against right. the world. Yeah, yeah. Now you you're me, also buddy. not loyal. Like against you the world, you seem right. spunky and like it was Starsky and Hutch, and you guys were never going to. That's why you know one of our colleagues said that she will never throw him under. They, you know, they're joined at the hip. They're going to rise or fall together. Yeah, because it seemed mad to throw him under. <laughs> well, because now what does she have left? She doesn't have ideas. She's shown that she's on both sides of the, you know, she doesn't really have ideas. She's never sounded articulate. I mean, when she was foreign minister visiting Ukraine, she didn't know what cities were in Russia and what cities were in Ukraine, like large cities. She's a complete fool on that count. Um, the gaffes I saw, I saw like centrist, the telegraph, like 
centre-right, you know, like a newspaper traditionally and currently more sympathetic to the Tories than not, sort of compiling a series of, of her exhibitions of ignorance um, about a wide range of issues. She, in other words, you know, it's one thing to have uh, ideology. It's another thing to have IQ. Like she doesn't have much <laughs> IQ. At least she had loyalty. At least she had a... No, she doesn't have right, that. Anyway, she, she has she has she has chosen Jeremy Hunt to replace Quateng. And uh Hunt was my pick for um who should have taken over uh way back when, um, before Theresa May. Uh I think, you know, he's just the he's the kind of guy that Tory should have bet on in the first place because he's pretty centrist, he's very smart, he's uh quite uh understated um he's like the falon of of the uk and you know he's not sexy uh, he's sort of too conventionally handsome i suppose definitely uh a last hurrah for the <laughs> you know what i mean he's like a part of the talk about the damning part. with faint praise my word <laughs> <laughs> you know like Theresa may looks weird <laughs> Uh, Liz Trust really looks quite weird. Boris Johnson looks bizarre. You know, the okay, UK so do like, my, they like a weird-looking politician. Yeah. The Americans like someone who looks Tories, like a advert. Exactly, exactly. Tories have to look a bit odd because Tories are not the party of sexiness. They're the party of, uh, of they're supposed to be sensible. And people often associate lack of good looks with like, prudence and intelligence and that kind of thing so. especially in the uk the uk yeah. has the ugliest actors on tv of like any country i know yes and i actually really appreciate that i i i, yeah. I, I like it when when people who look odd um are on tv because there's just something there's something about that i don't know how to there's a complete tangent please excuse me that flavor of of la kind of shine you know, you know what I'm talking about. That's people of who look Hollywood like George clips. Clooney. The George right. Clooney. Every, but but it, it really gets to me when you watch a TV series, and it's not just like you know the lead actors look like yeah. George Clooney. Yeah. It's like everyone yeah. looks like that. There's like a teller. And a, yeah. <laughs> and a, Everyone's and a, teeth a, have been whitened. No one has a and slight that, pot belly. It's exactly all... that to me comes off as creepy and distracting. <laughs> I agree. No, I really admire, I mean, the fact that the office, like just look at the British office, right? You've got Ricky Chervais, who was like a very handsome, good-looking, you know, teenager, childhood, you, you know, like pop star kind of femme bot. Uh, anyway, those those images. But by the time he's doing the office, he's like fat and he's got like wing bat vampire teeth and like very long and he pulls his upper lip all the way to his nose and it just exposes these long ghastly teeth that are piercing through to his bottom lip which is on top of several chins which is on top of like a, a frumpy mumpy thing and all of the other actors like none of their skins have ever seen the sun or tan lotion and they're you know it's like the ladies have very weak little jaws and the men have mono brows and it's just it's like quite hard to look at because there's so, and their characters are so ugly. You know, they're so awkward and sadistic and masochistic and frustrated. And it's just, it was sublime television. And then it goes to America and automatically it's like Steve Carell, uh, 
He's not like a, you know, Steve right, Carell so is like they did is like a. I think you know, <laughs> I think it, I think in the American office they did about the best they could with the sort of Hollywood crew, which is like that's as Steve Carell is as ugly as it gets in Hollywood. <laughs> He's like a bottom of the barrel for Hollywood. Yeah, uh, which is to say. He's still a pretty good-looking guy, so it's not exactly like, you know, there's, they're, yeah. they're matching the Brits at all there. Yeah, you think he's he? he yeah, he's he, there's that movie with him and Ryan Gosling where he's like playing a romantic lead with Julian Watt, what, and it's like, okay, here, here it goes, and and when you dress him up not as being like an awkward doofus, he just comes off like another Hollywood lead because that is his look. So anyway, I think it's great that the Brits, but it dooms Jeremy Hunt. It's the reason Jeremy Hunt could never is never going to be he, that guy's in the wrong party. Keir Starmer is pretty conventionally sort of handsome chap, and I think it's much better for Labour. Um, they Labour needs some like American energy, and I'm I'm going to take Nick's line, um, but I, you know uh, I read in the Daily Mail uh, that the Labour Party. Is had a wonderful um, uh, party conference because for the first time in living memory they had a party conference, and uh, and nobody booed "God Save the King" or "God Save the Queen." Yeah, look, as, as someone who's not a huge fan of Labour, this to me seems like a very low bar to cross. But still, you know, as we were saying earlier, credit where credit is due. <laughs> not actively hating your country's national anthem is a very good start on the road to governance. Yeah, and they and they and getting high fives from the Daily Mail. I mean, the polls are showing them uh, way ahead. Uh, Labour's ready Not to take over. Not just way ahead, like really, really way ahead. We're talking sort of like I think kind of equal to or pops, possibly even better than Tony Blair dominance in the in the like early two thousands, late nineties level of 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 polling. It's. It's not looking good for the Tories. I think the the last poll I saw had them on about twenty six percent, which, considering they got about forty six percent in the last election, is shall we say, not good. Yeah, no, dude. It's I. I really feel more and more like the Tories need to need to go. It's been a party that's become more and more defined by infighting, unintelligent, mediocre, ego driven, uh, weird looking people were like crabs in a bucket uh, scratching each, each other, other down, down in order right. to get to the to get to the I, top. I, 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 I sort of made this point a while ago it wasn't as articulate or as well thought out but I started to get this feeling that something not all is well in Denmark here or at least in the Tory party um, and that they've, they've no, actually just you, been in power too long you made this point long ago I'm I'm borrowing from you I as, and I thought it was impressive as, as, because I don't I'm not I'm not committed to either team. Not that you're committed, but like I don't have the same. I feel oh, I'd, I'd never vote for Labour in a thousand years, so <laughs> I don't mind yeah. being called a partisan on this one. The only yeah. thing I just so like you... more than Labour is the SNP, but uh, that's for another day. I've got to say, I'm I I can't imagine ever voting for the SNP there or shock. <laughs> Trying to split countries. I do think it's hilarious that the Supreme Court of of the UK is hearing this argument about whether or not the Scots can unilaterally declare a referendum 
in order to allow Scotland to break apart from the United Kingdom. Part of what I find hilarious about this is that, like, obviously the big foreign affairs story of the week is the UN vote on Donbass, the Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republics joining the Russian Federation and the Zaporizhia and Kherson Oblast also joining the Russian Federation. And South Africa was amongst 35 countries that, uh, you know, representing half the world um, uh, that didn't condemn or approve of this. Um, and then there were a couple of <laughs> those who voted like a very unprestigious group who who condemned the attempt to condemn it. Um, and then most countries uh, condemned, just straightforwardly condemned it. And uh, anyway, so it's like, you know, there just always is this, there, there always have been and are always going to be different standards of evaluation uh, when it comes to unilateral secession and so on. But, you know, part of what's interesting, I think, about the, the political uh, dilemma faced by the, by the Scots and the Tories and Labour and the SNP is that it seems to me that the Supreme Court, I mean, the Supreme Court of, in the UK is being asked, is this the kind of issue where the power has already been taken away from the central government of the United Kingdom and put in the hands of the province, as it were, of the state in American terms, the province in South African terms, or in their terms, the devolved um, uh, parliament. And what's their parliament in, in Scotland called again? Uh, Glen Morangie. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so it's very, I, I can't see how the Supreme Court could possibly uh, think that this is the kind of power that's been devolved. The powers that clearly haven't been devolved are, are um, the, the most hardcore police powers, the most hardcore military powers, and surely to goodness, the power of determining borders. So insofar as this is that, uh, it's like, uh, well, however, and this is a point that people in the Western Cape are going to be making, and have already been making. You know, it's one thing to say, let's do a referendum, and whichever way the referendum goes, we have to do it. It's another thing to say, let's do the referendum in order to get a new bit of evidence or data so we can get the referendum. And that doesn't mean we necessarily go ahead and act on it. It just means right. we're on a data collecting exercise. And there's actually a surprisingly large number of times that something like that has happened. Um, so I'm thinking, for example, of... Did you know that there was a time in the 60s when Malta was on course to become the next constituent part of the United Kingdom? And I don't mean a colony. I mean a part of the United Kingdom. It was going to be the United Kingdom of Great Britain, Northern Ireland, and Malta. <laughs> um, and the idea here was that Malta was getting independence from the UK, but it didn't actually want to be you know, really independent and want to be part of something bigger. It's this tiny little rocky island in the Mediterranean. And so the Maltese had a election and they voted to join the uk and you think okay well why is malta not a part of the uk now in an independent country well there was a whole bunch of political shenanigans going on um including the fact that one of the reasons the maltese had voted in such a way was because they, <laughs> they wanted the uh the british government to bail them out of some uh, financial troubles they had 
uh, gotten into. And the British almost accepted the deal and they said, no, nah, actually, we're not going to pay that. You have to sort out your finances first. And the whole thing fell apart and Malta became independent um, as an independent country. But there we, uh, uh, Puerto Rico, another example, right? I think it's voted like three times now to become a U.S. state. Uh, but still, every time it's always just, well, you know, first we have to sort out some finances and also you need to like sort out this piece of legislation and this and this. And it's tied up forever in the courts. Um, I remember people thought that Puerto Rico might become the 51st state after both uh, Romney and Obama supported its ascension um, from territory status to to state status in the US. But then, of course, it went nowhere. And I think in the current partisan climate, there's no way that that's going to happen unless there's a um, Republican-leaning state that also gets elevated alongside. And this is actually a surprisingly common thing that's happened in the US is when you get a state put in, they always put in the opposite political faction states as well. So you've got Alaska and Hawaii at the same time. Right, right. Uh, uh, And uh, there's been some suggestion that you make American Samoa, which actually is uh, quite Republican-leaning, a... Uh, another state, but American Samoa is so tiny that, you know, it would finally, I think, knock Wyoming off of the lowest population. Um, I may be wrong, but I think that's that's kind of where it's at. It's not a big place. Yeah, and and at the moment, it seems, at the moment, one of the challenges that it's like, if, if, if Washington, D.C. also wants to become a state so that there's another seat in the Senate. Um, and yeah, but that's unconstitutional. A, it's the dif- difficulty there. It, it would be a very blue... Yeah, but, you know... <laughs> It's hard. It's hard to do uh, any which way, and uh, sort of amongst on the, the far left. Is that fair? Anyway, a certain strand of the Democratic Party wants both that and Puerto Rico, and right. it kind of yeah, makes it easy kind of conversation. The meme stars can easily sort of dismiss Puerto Rico because they're like, "Dude, this is you know, we'll split you and say." Are you are you willing to say Puerto Rico and not Washington D.C. and no one's going none of the Democrats that are proposing this are going to say yes to that, um, and then you start going after why D.C. is a bad idea and then you've kind of deflected the conversation. Yeah. So, but opting into a state as session uh, as has happened is usually um, it's it's usually straightforward that in the case of as session you need both sides to like the idea, otherwise it's rapey. Okay. <laughs> Um, whereas succession, you know, like in, in sex, you need both sides to consent very clearly, but usually we think only one side has to say no in order for the, for the divorce to go through. Uh, only one party needs to want to get divorced. If the other party's like, no, I want to stay married, uh, in divorce, the usual moral intuition is that you should allow the divorce to proceed. And so on that basis, the unilateral... Uh, succession uh, seems to have a, a basis. I, I don't think that when, one when should... The, what, sorry, the, what if the last country to, su- to, to successfully um, secede without a huge amount of... Okay, so no, no, that's not quite the right way to put it. What was the last country to secede and then have it accepted by pretty much everyone? Was that South Sudan? No, Kosovo is not accepted by the 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 risky alignment. Um, no, it's, it's only it's, it's not even half the UN. I think accepts Kosovo, uh, whereas South Sudan is accepted by everyone, including Sudan. Whereas like Serbia is still not entirely okay with right. with Kosovo. So if you just send, <laughs> <then> you, 
the Sarsadan is not sad, it's swampy. Very right. swampy. If you if you just sand and swamp. With a with a lot of oil, uh, mind you. The the problem is to call Sarsadan a country is not entirely correct. It's more like a a a uh, internationally recognized region where roving bands of bandits fight each other over cattle. Yeah. No, it's not great. But so I, anyway, I think that in the in the in Scotland's case, part of what's going on is that they want I think the Scottish Nationalist Party would do well if they could get the Supreme Court to say you can't have a referendum unilaterally because a referendum as a mere data gathering exercise is not an acceptable uh, uh, way of going about things. A refer- either you go representative democracy or you have a referendum. And if you have a referendum, you're supposed to stick to it. We've just been through Brexit. Uh, let's let's learn something from that uh, experience. Uh, no, no Sorry, silly billy on, referendum. Yeah. On that point, there is yeah. apparently a majority of Labour supporters are in favour of Keir Starmer reversing Brexit. Yeah, but I don't think a majority of Brits are, even though... No, no, I, I, but I'm just saying that that's a potential pitfall that Labour could fall into, which is uh, yeah. getting caught up in, in like, oh, look, we've got this huge majority, because presumably they'll get a pretty big majority next election. Yeah. Uh, and then thinking, well, why not get everything we want all at once? <laughs> which, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the other thing is the other way the Supreme Court could rule is just to say, or the other likely part of that same ruling would be to say, no, you can't do it because the referendum has to be serious, which means it is a discharge of this power. You can't discharge this power because it's not a devolved power. It's not a home rule issue. This is a centralized government issue. And that's because, uh, you know, appeal to five different principles of international law that go against unilateral secession, including those parts of international law to which the UK is still sort of semi-attached because EU laws that haven't been replaced and repealed remain, as far as I can understand, effective on their statute books. Uh, You know, part of the sovereignty issue with Brexit was trying to stop it from being the case that the European Central Court basically changes British law. Um, and that in that doesn't continue to happen in the sense that new rulings since Brexit don't change British law. But my understanding is where they haven't, and they, and they replaced like a whole bunch of things by rote, but I'm not sure. Okay, anyway, you can leave the European thing out of it. Maybe I've got that wrong. Maybe they have successfully fully achieved uh, judicial sovereignty. Even so, because the UK doesn't have a written constitution, you've got to go back into its traditions of common law in order to understand uh, how this question goes. And it just strikes me as most likely that um, every instance of attempted unilateral secession has been uh, treated as illegal. Um, And uh, insofar as in British constitutional practice, that is what determines the norm, um, the court seems very likely to say, no, look, you can't do this. And then the SNP gets the best of all possible worlds because they get to argue for secession in the face of the UK court. They get to do exactly the same thing that the Brexiteers did, right? Is to say, 
we don't like the way this is going because we're disallowed political franchise. We're not even allowed to vote this way. Why? Because of some unelected bigwigs, literally dudes with wigs and black coats in this like mysterious, you know, in the House of Lords, only 10 years ago were they not called the House of Lords, you know, plenipotentiary council or whatever it was. They've just recently started calling themselves a court, but they're still acting like the old-fashioned British landed gentry aristocrats that think they can tell us that we're not even allowed to vote. So they get a great um, uh, uh, enemy to go after, uh, a very appealing thing. And there's no risk of winning because, of course, things do start getting scary when you imagine in this day and age with wars and inflation and gas worries and whatnot, you start getting a bit... Worried about actually going ahead with a secession, but you don't have to worry about that. You just get ten years of uh, a punching a great punching bag. At the end of which, you get to the point where you know the original referendum promise was: this is going to be the last one for a generation. You can start saying, "Okay, now it's next generation." We've got a whole bunch of young people who weren't able to vote in the last one. And we'd like to look at the issue again. And then I think the secessionists could get what they want um, in on the basis that they uh, can force the government of the day to, to grant the referendum and grant that the referendum will have just positive legal power. So, you know, uh, the UK remains like an endangered species. Um, and I do think that if Labour comes into power and tries to undo Brexit in foolish ways, uh, it can badly hamper the competitiveness of that market at a time when its competitive edge is very much blunted because of a confused sense of identity. It's like schizophrenic. It really doesn't know who it is now that it's not um, in the EU and not... uh, yeah, it's just not what it was. I, I think that they could. I think they could keep fumbling, and the more they fumble policy-wise, the less growth there is. The less growth there is, the more frustration there is because people are not seeing any improvement in their standard of living as they get older. They're not seeing their lives being any better than their parents were. People really like to outperform their parents in terms of standard of living. They're not doing that. They're on the margins. Is some real poverty and crime and whatnot, and that all. Uh, feeds the fermentation of 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 fallism, of counterproductive politics, of of breaking things, of breaking countries apart, of 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 cleaving zero to sum. identities. Yeah, zero sum. So anyway, uh, the 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 funniness of of Klutzy Liz Truss um, undoing the one good thing that she had going is uh, is tempered by the fact that they're. Yeah, I mean, the UK is also going into a long, hard winter. Thank goodness they've got uh, some subsidies for their prices. But anyway, I want to move on to the other Supreme Courts. Can I? The American one, yes. This one, I think this one is better. Because it's not so heavy, hey? Yeah. Well, well, look, there's a certain element of of, uh, Homer Simpson-ness to... To what's going on in the UK of just seeing something go completely wrong. Yeah. 
spectacularly wrong. But okay, so here we have in the in the UK in the US, the Supreme Court of the United States, SCOTUS, its season is back, and Nick sent me a message uh, about Clarence Thomas uh, coming out of this case with Andy Worrell and the artist formerly known as Prince. So I think you can kick us off with that, and then I'll get a little bit into the case. Right. So uh, this this uh, I recommended I think last episode the dispatch. Um, and this is the kind of thing you get from them is uh, they started off, they do a morning email on, on all weekdays and they basically started off by saying that there had uh, been some important information revealed in the, uh, in this case that Gable's just about to describe. And that is that uh, Justice Clarence Thomas is in fact a huge fan of Prince. Well, at least he was a huge fan of Prince according to him in the eighties. When he mentioned this, one of the other justices, Ilana Kagan said, wait, no longer. Are you, are you no longer a fan of Prince? And Thomas responded, well, only on Thursday nights. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. And I, so partly it reminded me when, when uh, at Sicilians back in the day, it used to be such a meme to say only on Tuesdays. Um, teachers would say, you know, like, Oh, you're misbehaving. I remember especially Lionel Zimmer. Oh, you're so naughty. He started it in, in my memory. I remember the drama teacher saying, Lionel, you're making noise in the back of the class. We're trying to, we're trying to work here. And he'd say, no, ma'am, I'm not making noise. Uh, I'm a good boy. And she'd say, what are you talking about, Lionel? You are a naughty shit. And Lionel would be like, no, ma'am, that's only on Tuesdays. <laughs> and... And I, but I think the, the the to bring out the wisdom of of Clarence Thomas's thing, you know, obviously there's a bit of a tension in admitting that you're a Prince fan in a trial that kind of involves Prince, because it's like, is this a is this a relevant bias? Is this a reason to recuse yourself? And it's a strange thing. But here we are dealing with a copyright case that involves Andy Warhol, the uh, probably the greatest American artist since. Jackson. Well, it helps. It helps when Prince is dead, because then you know you're not ruling specifically in his personal favor, even if it's yes, in the favor to, of to, his estate. To, right? For him to come over to your party and and you know sing you happy birthday. Um, but but at the same time, you know, it's nice to also just the metaphor of the judges' robes. Like, okay, the judges have. You know, I'm sure that the different judges have different opinions about Andy Warhol's work <clears throat> and about Prince's music and about um, uh, uh, Lynn uh, Goldsmith's photography. Um, but in a way, they've got to put on the robes. And, and part of the robes is they need to act a bit differently. But part of the robes is it's rude for us to look under their robes. You know, don't go looking under the robes at the genitals. Leave, leave that out. I think that's a really important thing. And that's and I'm saying that because we've discussed this, but you know, I was chatting with some of with one of some some one of South Africa's most respected younger lawyers with one of the fanciest degrees you can imagine, uh, about the Dodds Jackson case, the overturning Roe Wade. And she said, you know, I have the Supreme Court of the United States is is intellectually dishonest. And I said, why? And she said, because look at all those men who ruled about how women's bodies should be handled. You know, she's looking under the robes at the genitals of the judges. It's not, uh, it's bad, it's bad form. Um, in, in, in my, you know, in the only way that things actually work. Anyway, so here's the interesting thing about this case. It's much less heavy than the, than the abortion thing that we've discussed a few times. 
on the it's 1984, right? And Vanity Fair wants to write an article, publish an article about Prince. Prince has just released his song Rain. Rain. I mean, it's a we've all we all know we all have heard Purple Rain. If there's one yeah. Prince song that you've heard, it's Purple Rain. Yeah, have you thought of have you thought of maybe getting out of this analyst career and taking up one as a, as a singer once again, Gary? I know you've done it before. Purple maybe we could try it again. Rain. Did they? I'm I'm not gonna dignify that with response. <laughs> the this article about about Prince written by someone under a, 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 a pseudonym. His real name is something like Leon Weaselstein, which is great, <laughs> great surname. Definitely the kind of surname where you, where you invent a pseudonym for yourself. <laughs> and it starts out with this anecdote about this American sweetheart gymnast, like, you know, cornflakes and apple pie, goody two-shoes, goody girl who wins a gold medal at the Olympics and she's on the tonight show with Johnny Carson. And it's, it's all so wholesome and granola. And he's like, uh, so what did you spend your money on? And she's like, well, I bought a little red Corvette. Hey. And it seems like, Oh, you know, every 16, 18 year old girl, 17 year old girl, she's in like grade 11 or matric. You know, they all get cars when they're 16. But, like, you know, she can get, like, a really cool kind of Zooty car. You know, it's like Reith Witherspoon kind of, you know, whole milk. Okay. And this writer is like, hold on. That's literally the name of a Prince song, A Little Red Corvette, about sort of broken hearts and shattered dreams and used condoms leaking on the back seat of a little red Corvette. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, he, you're really uh you're really uh, okay <laughs> <laughs> and he's like this is the thing about prince and he does a beautiful job of contrasting prince with michael jackson it's like michael jackson's biggest hit in, in a way might be billy jean billy jean is not my lover the whole song is about denying that i had sex with billy jean um she thinks i'm the one thinks that's her son Dude, I'm just with, you know, Billie Jean is like a friend zone song. And his argument is that Michael Jackson is all about sexual um, uh, disin denial. You know, you know, he's very, he's a motai naive. He's this young boy who started before having sex. Yeah, his, he always his, sounded like a child, you know. His, yeah, his image is, um, has always, always cultivated as being much more sort of wholesome, right? It's like. He, he's always about, I love you, and the world is, you know, black and white together and yes. rainbows and puppies and that kind of thing. And if you think about his songs that have a bit of a sexual charge, it's so performative. It's so um, gestural. You know, he might grab his crotch, but then what does he do? He tips his hat and does a moonwalk. You know, he's going backwards. He's walking backwards. The main thing is to see the fluidity with which his body can navigate space rather than seeing a simulacrum of, of sex. Whereas Prince is like whispering about how it's better to have sex with a man than a woman because men put more passion into it. And like, okay, you as a woman, if you want to have sex with me, you need to like pump it like a dude, like in front of women in lingerie 
with like little plastic roses between each breast, each pair of breasts, kind of on stage, whispering and sounding out, you know, words about threesomes and masturbating and simulating masturbation and then writhing on the floor and like, and simulating orgasm. Um, the kind a, of thing you weird art people really like. In a very literal way. <laughs> and, and what this, and what this, well, what this review is trying to do is he's trying to say, you know, Prince was single-mindedly obsessed with sex and he presented right. it in a very frank way. And it's kind of sometimes difficult to look at. Like, you know, this, the journey on the red Corvette from this like idea of the kind of sweet present for a dad to give his daughter on her 17th birthday to the the sort of beginning of the end of an abortion. Right, the, the innocence lost kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, like um, sleaze. He's like, the, sex is a serious project. It's a serious part of the human condition. And so it's something worth looking at seriously. And he respects this artist for for doing the thing that Michael Jackson doesn't do, um, of kind of showing the, the 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 butt crack and the pubic hair. But he says, like, as much as, as Prince is, when you see him on stage kind of building up to a climax, it's like just surrounded by lots and lots of lingerie and leather and, and, uh, and he's wearing a cod piece and he's like thumping the air, even harder than Bruce Springsteen. The, if you if you look at his eyes and you look at his little at his lips under that undergrown moustache and you look at how he walks when he's just walking back to the microphone, it's cold and it's calculating and it's mean. There's something very unjoyful about this dude. There's something very calculated, very ultimately commercial. So on the one hand, there's this authentic, you know, sex is dark. And this author, today, he doesn't use the phrase toxic masculinity. But today, we would totally say that. He'd say, you know, Prince is exhibiting. Prince's lyrics are often about, you know, uh, to, to, you know, Sylvia Plath said, the harder you hit a woman, the faster she bounces back. Women are like tennis balls. That's Sylvia Plath. I didn't say it. I'm not advocating. Um, <laughs> Yes. But, you know, Prince has got a lot of lyrics that are kind of about, like, um, abusing women and and them sexually wanting you even more as a result. Or of women that are semi-callous. Right, the, tra the traditional bad boy, bad girl kind of stuff. And, and, uh, and... So this writer is basically saying, you know, Prince is doing that. It's very authentic. It's like, you know, the path to the path to passion is not necessarily pretty, um, and it's great that this guy is exploring the mutual attraction that can occur between deeply committed misogynists and mis and misandrists, um, and you, you <laughs> and I totally. Yeah. I, my mic was muted, but for the audience there, I was uh, giggling enormously at that <laughs> description. <laughs> yeah, that's me. That's me. That's not Leon Weaselstein. Uh, so apologies to him if I'm mischaracterizing, but I think that's kind of how he's putting it. Anyway, the but at the same time as, as, as Prince is giving this very honest depiction, it's so calculated and so commercial and so... And there's a kind of crassness about that, and it's complicated. So he's saying, you know, you can't. He says, you can't. It starts by saying, you cannot escape Prince. He has arrived. The evidence is everywhere. The reasons are good. And then let's talk about his music. And it's not about whether you like him or not. It's about understanding this phenomenon. And it sort of harkens back to a period where America, I think, was kind of had gotten through the Woodstock thing, through this like hippie love, 
uh, way past Elvis and the Beatles, had moved through uh, some of the more camp glam rock stuff and was now getting to a point where camp glam rock was meeting the f- grunge before grunge. And in other words, it was still ready to be shocked. I mean, there's something quite sweet and doer about this Vanity Fair writer almost being scandalized by Prince, by Prince's antics on stage and, and, and trying to convince the guys, you know, we should take this seriously. But at the same, <laughs> it's not like today. But at the same time, anyway, I think there's also something kind of timeless about those observations. And in in the course of writing this thing, or in the course of getting it published, Vanity Fair commissions says to Andy Warhol, "Look, we'd like you to do a piece of Prince. Purple Rain is everywhere, and in the '60s and early '70s, you did these famous iconic portraits of Marilyn Monroe." and Jackie Kennedy, and Liz Taylor, and Chairman Mao. And, you know, you haven't done anything like that in, in 15, 20 years. And One wouldn't of those it be is not like the others. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Janity, Jackie Kennedy was a real lady. <laughs> anyway, by the way, Marilyn, Man- Marilyn Monroe, that, that painting of Marilyn Monroe, the famous one, the, not the silk screen, the painting, that thing sold for $195 million earlier this year. Now, I want to quickly, I mean, that is no, three people, and a half. People out there, yeah, people out there got some rand. change. <laughs> three and a half, dude, three billion rand. It's three billion rand. You're still short 500 million rand. You can raise three billion randses and they're like, no. That's not you're, – you're half a billion rand short. It is an amazing amount of money for a painting. I just want to bash state media. Uh, BBC said that it's the most that's ever been paid for a 20th century work of art. That's not nearly true. Um, uh, but uh, NPR also stayed on media. They did better. They said it's the most that's ever been paid for a 20th, 20th century work of art at auction. So the ad auction bid is important because the other big sales, Rothko, Klimt, the biggest Picasso sale. No, Rothko and Klimt and a couple of others. Jackson Pollock, the biggest Jackson Pollock sale. They've been private sales, not at auction. And they've been bigger than than this. Uh, but NPR is also wrong because they ignored inflation. Uh, and if you take the 2015 Picasso record at auction at Christie's. You know, Gabriel, would... you're, you're, uh, you're unusual amongst people who could write about art in that you also understand economics. So don't be too hard on that. <laughs> I know, I know. Look, I, I, I like all the state-owned media enterprises. Um, anyway, the point is that, uh, especially the SABC, I wish they'd have me on again. Um, <laughs> the... <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> anyway, the point is that it's is that is that um the you know Andy Warhol really is an amazing amazing dude. Uh and I think he deserves he really in my opinion deserves the 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 reputation that he has. He so this is 1984. He's Andy Warhol dies in 1987. So this is like one of the last things he does. He comes back he says, "Dude, I'd be happy to do Prince. Prince is a fascinating subject." Um Vanity Fair uh, has a photograph of Prince from Lynn Goldsmith, who is a photographer who takes photographs of celebrities, mainly musicians. And, you know, it's Prince kind of looking into the camera, looking kind of pretty. 
and it's face forward and they and they and they pay her four hundred dollars for the licensing and their understanding is like we don't necessarily have to do this but we you know we want to be nice he has four hundred dollars um you know back in the day this is like after hunter s thompson but still the days where uh, magazines like Vanity Fair are, are flying people around the world to go to the catwalks of uh, n- newly emerging markets in the Far East. And, uh, you know, if you can get a nice story out of Christopher Hitchens about Afghanistan fashion, you'll you'll fly him there. They, they had a lot more money than, than print media has today. $400. Here's $400. And Andy Warren, here's this photo, and he does the silkscreen thing, which basically means, you you know, he doesn't do it himself. He gets some pros to project this image onto a silkscreen you 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 kind of burn it in you uh you sort of burn the the black and white qualities of the image onto uh a kind of very finely textured canvas surface you paint before the burning process and you get that super some before some after and you get that superimposed famous kind of thing that you know from seeing the Marilyn Monroe and uh, and so on pictures anyway he creates 16 of these images he does a big painting called prince orange uh the image that vanity fair uses is called prince purple from the prince series and i think they put it on the cover and they have the story purple fame to riff off of the purple rain thing and 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 part of the reason i'm giving this background is that i suppose i'm in after listening to the thing i went and read the article i think it's a really cool article I think that the image is really cool. I really didn't like Prince in high school very much, but when I went to university, one of my dancing friends um, played me this Prince song about grappling with his father, and like it's like very weird. Like like everything with Prince, there's like sexual weirdness and uh, edible weirdness and grief and angst and anguish and and you know like is he trying to come out as gay and oh my word. But at the same time, within all of that, there's a kind of there is something in it that's just human and um, and inescapable. You know, there's a there's a there's a there's a there's a, there's a, there's, a, there's an aesthetic quality there that's uh, I don't have the powers to to convey in words. It's, you sort of have to hear it, I guess. And there's I think there is a similar quality in 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 Andy Warhol's picture. Okay. Fast forward to 2016, Prince dies. Vanity Fair wants to republish the article as a tribute because it's a really well-written article and it's probably one of the most famous images they ever got to use in their thing. So they pay the Andy Warhol estate. Uh, Andy Warhol's dead, but you know he has a, a trust, the foundation, that manages his stuff. Can, can I just say that it's a bit weird to see like two organizations which essentially represent dead people fighting each other? Yeah. That's... Yeah. Well, it's, it's not quite, weird. right? The, the Andy okay. Warhol thing, Vanity Fair's not in the fight and Prince is not in the fight. What then happens is, but the Andy Warhol Foundation, which is in the fight, is representing a dead dude in a way. Lynn Goldsmith, who's still alive, the photographer's still alive. And she says, what the hell? Why didn't you guys pay me? Ah, I see. <laughs> Interesting. So then it goes to court. And the court says, ah, listen, honey, here's how it works. There are four factors that we're supposed to consider to see if copying someone else's work is fair use or if, you, if it's a copyright violation and you can only do it if you pay them money and you have to crack a deal. And one of those factors that you have to consider is, like, has this been a transformative work of art? Has this somehow totally made something new? And 
the paradigm exemplar, you know, the case that it's like, if you want to know what that means, you know, what does green mean? Well, I'm going to point at a green tree and you look at it and, oh, that's what green is. The paradigm exemplar, the, the example to point at to give you a sense of like, this is definitely it, is Andy Warhol's portraits of Campbell's soup cans. He took uh, uh, an actual soup can, painted it. He also took a Brillo box, which is a soapbox, painted these things. And his paintings were thought like, is that a copyright violation? Because Campbell's soup cans, their logos, their branding, that is totally copyrighted. Like you right. are definitely the, the, like, not The visual thing is designed and used to market and associated with. Yeah, they got Don Draper from yeah. Mad Men or whomever, you know, Roger Sterling. <laughs> they got some madman dude. They paid him a lot of money to come up with a Campbell uh, logo. And that's what he's copying. That's exactly what he's copying. Um, and that's, but it's a new work of art. And, um, and it is what it is. So, so the first judge says, okay, look, on the basis of that, Andy Worrell is like the dude that proves that you can copy something and it's so transformative that it makes it a new work. And it's not like a photocopy copy. I mean, he's like really made it very different. The one is just a photograph of prints. The other one is like the first thing you see when you think it. Uh, that's not what I mean, but you get it. First thing you think when you see it um, is, is, oh, that's an Andy Warhol portrait. And then the second thing might be similar to what the article is saying. You know, oh, wow, you know, this guy is kind of sexy and sweet and human and demure, but he's also something lurid and it's a little bit like, you know, like a shocking purple, a little bit of a vomit purple and so on. And cold and flat. It sort of flattens out the textures. And So then it goes to the district court, their Supreme Court of Appeal equivalent. And Supreme Court of Appeal says, no, nah, dude, this is not right. And Lynn Goldsmith, the photographer's lawyers, assuming it's the same lawyer as I heard in the in the Supreme Court of Appeal deliberation. She is a fighter. She's coming out angry. She's like, this is outrageous. My poor client, you guys are trampling on every photographer. You are trampling on every aspiring, you know, you guys have no respect. She comes out fighting and says, this is a classic example of David and Goliath. And in the first instance, they let Goliath win because Worrell's famous you know, she characterizes it. You guys said Worrell won because he's a genius. That's the first argument, right? Worrell is such a genius that if he takes a photograph and he puts a mustache on the on the photograph, then it's, it's an no Andy Worrell. Oh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's an Andy Worrell. And it's true. Picasso cut out. I mean, I saw it in the Johannesburg Art Gallery. Picasso cut out a piece of paper in the shape of a tie i also saw one in the metropolitan museum of art he took an a4 piece of paper cut it out in the shape of a tie scribbled on it while having lunch gave it to the restaurateur that restaurateur sold it for two million rand because it's a picasso it's like at a certain stage this is a joke this is absurd and you cannot respect yeah, this, is, this, this is the kind of thing that makes philistines <laughs> like me think that everyone in the art world is basically mad <laughs> yes like, oh, if you're Andy Worrell, you can draw a moustache and it's your own on someone else's photograph. But, like, if Nicholas Lorimer was to draw on a moustache on someone else's photograph, that would be <laughs> – it's unthinkable, Nick. Look, it's unthinkable. Firstly, I would pay a significant amount of money for a moustache that I drew. Well, Mostly because it could be a, it could be a, a, a textbook 
be used in a textbook about how not to draw a mustache. Okay, you're going to sponsor your own self as, as an example of how not to do things. I, I like that, Nick. You're you're a soldier of science, you know. No, I just can't draw. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, maybe Andy Warhol couldn't draw. No, Andy Warhol actually had very good technique when he went into a class mind. So, so the second court says, dude, this is uh, this is copyright violation. You guys owe her the money. But but Andy Warhol's lawyers have said, guys, if you say this is copyright violation. There is an enormous amount. Everything that Andy Warhol's ever done, basically, is going to be copyright violation. And also, Andy Warhol started a whole movement of people doing this kind of thing, of you know, kind of copying each other's work, but like building on it. You're going to say all of that stuff is copyright violation too. You guys are going to blow up the intellectual property law um, of the art world. And you know, this is a very many multi-billion-dollar interest industry. You guys are playing with fire. And so it goes to the Supreme Court of the United States, SCOTUS, to try and settle this matter. Yeah, copyright law is one of those things that's a little bit um, difficult, it seems. Uh, it always, it, it, it's, it's one of these things which actually splits even some property rights people right down the middle, right? So there's, I know this is like one school of libertarians. Like I have a friend, I have a friend, he's like ridiculously libertarianish in a lot of ways, right? to a sort of almost comical degree. Yep. And yet he basically doesn't believe in intellectual property rights at all. But then wow. you'll find another guy who's equally right. libertarianish who will yeah. say, no, no, this is the property of a person and therefore it can be defended by them until the death and they can't be taken from them and the state must protect it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but also the fact that the U.S. has uh, – you see it a lot now in the internet age – um, copyright, you know, uh, there's so much content being produced on the internet, which blurs the lines of copyright. You know, memes are one of the best examples of this. Yeah. Like screenshots from TV shows and things and yeah. clips from movies and such. Uh, it, it really feels like there's something that's not quite sitting well with copyright. I know a lot of YouTube creators get very upset by copyright because you play... You know, let's say you're say you're doing film analysis and you play a 30 second clip for um, of, 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 a, of, a, of a film to discuss a thing that happens in the scene. YouTube will say, nope, you don't hold the copyright for that. Um, if it gets claimed, then the person who made the film gets to take all of the revenue from your video, even if it's only 30 seconds of an hour long discussion. So I'm not surprised that something complex like this has ended up in Scotus because it, it really feels like America and, and the world at large is, is heading for some sort of, I think there has to probably at some point be a larger conversation about where exactly the lines of, of copyright are. And I know that goes on all the time in the courts, but this is exactly, this is exactly it. So, so I think this is a really good example of why libertarianism and socialism are, are both kind of stupid. And it's not just libertarianism. It's a kind of... Well, let's, yeah. not, let's not use the term libertarian because literally no one agrees on what it means. <laughs> right. So, so and, and to support that, um, Milton Friedman is the most famous and influential person ever to call himself a libertarian. Although towards the end of his life, he started calling himself a classical liberal because he got put off by other libertarians. But he said... Um, he acknowledged the following point, 
that how we define property must be partly conventional. So uh, how high, and the example he used, how high above your house, your landed property, you're allowed to say belongs to you, or how low below, must be a matter of convention. It must be the case that in different countries, there can be different answers to that. If you try and say in every country on earth, you know, some people think property rights are ordained by God. This is a very popular idea in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. Um, and John Locke kind of gives expression to this. Uh, he semi-secularizes it by saying there's a natural law and there's a natural right in property. And he and that, says... yeah, And that carries through into the American founding, right? Where they sort of hand wave away this whole complex philosophical discussion by saying, oh, it's self-evident. Delish. I mean, they do. Um, well, this they is do, one of the greatest hand waves in history, by the way. <laughs> it's, a, it's a super hand wave. They do, they do sort of get there later on in the Bill of Rights in a similar way to us by saying you can't be deprived of property, uh, life or liberty without due process. So the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, which comes after the Civil War, um, is, and I mean, in the original Bill of Rights, they say you can't have army, you can't have soldiers billeted in your home. So from the beginning, because of their experience with the Brits, they, they, they thought the army, like in Great Expectations in Charles Dickens, the army can't show up at your place on Christmas Day and be like, yes, yes we're going off to some very terrible dudes and it's very tiring. We'd like to stop here and have all your lunch, um, which the British army could do. Uh, I saw so that, that as a protection uh, of property rights. They at least said the army can't do that. They said, and then after they, uh, the Civil War, they said you can't be deprived uh, of property rights. What's yeah. the, quartering, the quartering clause? It's like the, the Third Amendment or something, right? Yes. I think it's. I, I saw um, an Onion article, which is that uh, Third Amendment advocacy group celebrates a 220th year of no violations. Yes, <laughs> I'm, like it's that. so good. I love it. I love it. It's a great. It's a very, At the time, they thought this is very important. We need to block this, and they were so successful that, like, now it just seems like a joke. Okay, but so. Property rights, some people think that there's a natural law. So, so here's an example of that is if I've mixed my labor with this thing, then I own it. Um, you know, and so like Locke's idea is there's a tree in the middle of the Garden of Eden and you pluck the apple from the tree. Well, now you've put in effort. So before you pluck the apple from the tree, that, that was up for anyone. But now you've plucked the apple from the tree. That's now your apple because you've put in some effort. Or in a different version, you plant, you, you take the seed from the apple and you go somewhere else and you put that seed in the ground and put a bit of water. Then a tree grows. That tree is now your tree and those apples are now your apples even before you pluck them because you've mixed your labor. So there's, this, there's, there's a classic archetype of a natural law theory of property rights. And it just turns out to be the case that if you try and apply that to any of these domains, you're going to get completely buggered. Um, uh, it's clearly the case if someone builds a super high trampoline that can, you know, if someone could put a kilometer tall thing on top of their house, that wouldn't make the property a kilometer above their house. There's if they could dig a kilometer down, wouldn't make it theirs and so on and so forth. So what's the other option? The other option is to say that um, property rights must in, at some scale be conventional and conventional just means like, well, drive on the left side of the road, drive on the right side of the road. That's just the way it is, Chief. We've all agreed. Yeah, choose one. And Once you've chosen it, what makes it right is that you've yes. chosen it. And this is an idea that um, 
I often speak, you know, Elena and I sometimes. Uh, you know what it is? It's a it's yeah. a pre-modern way of looking at things. It's like that's just how it is, and it's not important why it is. What's important is that's how it is, uh, and like monarchies, for example, often base themselves upon this kind of principle. But I think this is a good example of how, even for sort of liberals, um, this principle can sometimes also still be useful. I don't think that is pre-modern. I think pre-modern. I'm more comfortable with thinking of the pre-moderns as a, as appealing to divine authorship. So it's easier to imagine a monarchy that says, "Well, God made it so." Right? Yeah, but but or, it, it, that, that you're you're missing a step in those arguments because it's like, well, uh, you, I'm the king because God said so. Yeah. Well, how do we know that God said so? Well, I'm the king. And that's yes. just the way it is. <laughs> so yes. it's kind of no, no, no. you see what no, I mean. So, no, no. So, okay. So, 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 I, so he has a he has a key point, right? Um, the enlightenment. What is the enlightenment? What's the key enlightenment idea? Well, it's hard to say for sure, and people will have different versions. I like um, Isaac Newton's notion that uh, if we can see further than our ancestors, it's because we stand on the shoulders of giants. So it's a, a sort of it's a synthesis of two ideas. One idea is that we should respect what's already been conservative idea. We should try and hold on to the good stuff. Another idea is a progressive idea. We should try and improve things. And a lot of uh, societies have been dominated by one or the other. The Renaissance is very much an exercise in saying all of the good stuff already happened. We just need to remember it and interpret it properly and it's all going to be okay. The Enlightenment starts coming along because scientists are discovering things that clearly nobody knew before and building things that clearly allowed us to do what we couldn't do before. Um, but with that comes a revolutionary energy, an energy, uh, what we would now call like a Marxist, a fallist energy of like bugger the old, in with the new. That's Everything must be torn down. We're building the new world of reason and science. Get in, losers. We're building a world of the science. Yes, uh, and Marxism and actually comes out of that, right? Because it's originally totally, an idea totally. to reorganize society along quote-unquote scientific lines. Yes, exactly. So all of the you know post-Enlightenment disasters can be understood as, as like people reading the wrong half, you know, some part of the Enlightenment movement, but not the whole thing. Standing on the shoulders of giants, that's a great one. Another way to conceptualize it um, is to think one must realize that every factual claim that one makes is only sensible in the context of some framework of analysis. And every framework of analysis has some uh, capacity for error. Uh, and every exercise within that, therefore, has a capacity of error. So what you have to do is not just evaluate your particular beliefs, but kind of try and look at your whole framework of analysis compared to other frameworks of analysis and, and check your implicit bias. Um, that, that notion, um, I think another way to think about it is it, it's, sort of the, it's sort of the idea that you need at an esteemy level to get along with different religions in the same society including atheism and including, you know, libertarianism taken to a religious level and so on is you, <laughs> is you, you need to be able to say, look, uh, you know, uh, before Copernicus, we had this way of doing the science and it started with like a heliocentric notion. And now we're going to say, if your starting assumption was everything's going around the sun, you're going to go very far 
in developing equations to predict the passage of the moon and the phases and the passage of the stars and so on. And you can get some good predictive and explanatory powers. But here's an entirely different starting point. Uh, the Earth is actually going around the sun and spinning on its own axis. And here, and you can then do a lot of equations. And for a while, it's going to seem like the older one is better because it's more established, it's more fleshed out. The new one, it's a bit clumsy in the beginning and people are kind of fumbling around. But it, And then, then there's going to be a while where it seems like, well, these are two different uh, ways of thinking about things that both have costs and both have benefits. And in further time, you can be like, well, it turns out one of them is really useful for uh, helping children understand East and West. You know, the sun comes up in the East, <laughs> sets in the West. One of them is always more useful than the other. It's not like one ever totally triumphs. But it turns out for like kind of almost everything else, uh, you know, the um, the there is a better version. There's a true version. Um, and, and what formerly seemed true is now relegated to being a myth that's useful to to take on now and then. And, and it's because we've got literally a different frame of analysis. And, and in physics, frames of reference are, are very real discovery of the Enlightenment, which persists through into the 19th and 20th century. The notion of Einstein's special and general relativity, the notion of Ernst Mach's sort of presaging of that, the notion of quantum physics, which sort of comes both sides out of, out of Mach, is all about it's frames of to... reference being different. Depending on your frame of reference, things are going to seem very different. That's another way of putting the enlightenment idea. And the best place to be is on the shoulders of giants looking even further. That little process you described about the movement over time between, um, you know, sort of dispute, between fringe to dispute to myth, right? Yeah. Um, that was, it was in the middle of that process that Galileo uh, had his little run-in with the Catholic Church. Yeah, no, put it's him a in hot... jail. <laughs> right, not not for 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 going against the word of God, but for going against the quote unquote science. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> they said they said, look, the math doesn't work. This is spitting in the face of all the great established things that we've already got. Yeah. and yeah. like you're just making this all up. You don't have the proper observations to determine it. You're just assuming things. This is garbage. That's why we're putting you in jail because you're clearly teaching unscientific nonsense, uh, <laughs> which turned out to be a little bit awkward when it <laughs> when the clock turned the other way. <laughs> The, but, and uh, apolo- I think it took the church quite a while, the Catholic Church at least, to issue the apology. Yeah, they did apologize issue an apology. Like, like the 80s or something. It took yes. really long time. <laughs> <laughs> it's like 400 years. <laughs> uh, um, ooh, whoops. <laughs> we were perhaps a bit overzealous in that. But uh, he was actually, Galileo was actually a friend of Pope's, and it was a lot of it was due to really just internal political machinations in the papal court. Uh, which is the part of the story that's like more boring than this great morality tale of you know science versus yeah. uh, uh, I don't know it just ignorance or whatever however people cast it. But well, sorry, two different two di- <laughs> a frame of reference versus another frame of reference. And my favorite yes. example of that, like at university, was phlogiston. You know, there was a notion that fire had a negative weight. People a long time ago <laughs> figured out that if you t- if you took um, a fixed amount of stuff and you set it on fire. Then it would, and then you've just got the ash, it'd be lighter. Right. Yes. And they had a so, notion of the conservation of energy long before yes. it was formally formalized. But they were like, how, how can there be conserved energy if it's gotten lighter? And they were like, well, because the fire's got a negative. 
<laughs> I mean, it's and a, they, it's a, it's a cunning solution on limited, dude, yeah, of limited dude, information. Dudes did experiments and they calculated the negative weight of fire. And they were like, blue fire weighs even less, less than red fire. And they were using negative numbers. I mean, what an amazing attempt to... And today, by the way, if that sounds crazy, then you realize, no, there's a way to understand this, which is, which is everything has a weight. That's that these little carbon dust molecules and oxygen molecules particularly that get released. So some of the weight is lost in the form of air. Likewise, today, I feel like for the last hundred years, we've been living in this world where at a quantum level, we're told a thing both is and is not. And the proper way to understand it is that nothing is because everything's probabilistic. That just doesn't actually make sense. I'm not pushing against the science. I'm just saying the myth hasn't <laughs> gone away. And one day, yes. maybe we'll understand it better and it'll seem as silly as phlogiston. And one day, yes. maybe we won't because we've gotten to the limits of our human capacity for understanding. But it, right, it's right. silly. It's clearly silly. <laughs> I have I have one more example of this. And I, I haven't done proper research myself to tell whether this is apocryphal or not. But I think it's a nice example of the kind of thinking of the frames of reference. So I once heard a talk where a guy said that there were at least some scholars in the Middle Ages in Europe who said, you know, we know the world is round. Everyone knows the world is round. The problem is the southern hemisphere is uninhabitable by human beings. Mm. You think that's weird? Why is that? Well, imagine you are an Englishman. If you go south, you go to France. Eh, the weather's nicer. Fine. It's a bit warmer. Yeah. You go to Spain, the weather's a bit warmer. It's pretty hot there, but, you know, it's still kind of nice. You cross the sea into Morocco. It starts and, getting heavy. Uh, whoa, it's really heavy. And then beyond that, it's literally just an ocean of sand where yeah. the, the sun is so hot that the people have literally burnt skin. There's yeah. no possible way that if you go any further south than that, that human beings are alive. Maybe there's some kind of weird sort of monstrous creatures that live there, but people yeah. obviously can't live there. It's too hot. Massive lizards or something. Right, exactly. Uh, or like lizard people or something. Yeah. And this, from their frame of reference, of having the limited knowledge that, you know, uh, if you go south, every yeah. time you go south, it's, it gets it's hotter. It's a pretty smart inference. Yeah. Yes. You're inferring <laughs> was, a pattern from the available data. It's only as they got, you know, it's further and further south that they realized that there's actually a limit to the heat gain and that it starts to get cold on the other side again. And then they were like, yeah. oh, well, actually, that was junk. Never mind. <laughs> yeah. Crazy, stupid foolishness. But so, okay, why does this matter? It matters because... Um, sometimes you find yourself stuck with two frames of reference, both of which allow us to make meaningful claims and both of which seems to have costs and benefits and we're not sure, quite sure which one is, is preferable. And it's that kind of world in which it's most obviously clear that there is a, are two conventions. You can choose then, as it were, which one you're going to go for. And if you're in one society, clearly you should go by the one convention. If you're in another society, you should go by the other convention. And by the way, the living examples of this ongoing fact of life is what we call natural language. Uh, English is not better than Afrikaans or Zulu or French or Han, Chinese or uh, Russian, for that matter. Although Russian is evil. Of course. <laughs> Never mind. I take it back. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> Leo, let's, let's not get started on that. <laughs> um, but which language you choose to use, there is a wrong language in the sense that, like, if you speak the language that no one else understands, that's wrong. Also, even though every outside of maybe mama as being like a natural, easy sound for babies to make when they've just been born, whatever, 99% of language is just conventional. 
it is wrong to say uh, dog eat eat fish cat monger backwards blue three two two like that is not a grammatically well formed sentence um, but not because of some natural fact not like the natural you know pluck the apple from the tree you've mixed your thing it's like water falls gravity natural laws of of human sociology no it's not wrong because of that it's wrong because we've agreed that it's wrong uh, it's also not wrong because God made it so. It's wrong because we've agreed it's wrong. So conventions like drive on the left side of the road in this country or drive on the right side of the road in that country, once they're there, the silly the silly idea is if it's just conventional, it's just relative, there's no morality. No. For conventional claims, they establish what is right and wrong in a way that really can have moral force. And this idea, it's a frame of reference idea that is – sort of starts in a humble place because it says you've got to explain things without God's helping you out to, to say he or she or them kind of decided that it's good or bad for this reason. And it's also kind of pessimistic in the sense it's like science is not going to give you what God used to give uh, politics in the terms of setting right and wrong. What we're left with is conventions. And Within a convention, something can be right and something can be wrong, but the whole convention can be not good. For example, the laws of apartheid were a convention, and they determined right and wrong, but the laws themselves were bad, so they fell within a broader convention. Sometimes we call it international law. Sometimes we call it political science. Ultimately, the broadest convention that we can envisage is one on morality, and the problem there is the convention is very weakly established. Um, but this sort of abandoning of layers levels of analysis and replacing them for higher levels of generality or for lower levels of generality um, as a way of finding moral force, this, I would say, is the Enlightenment notion of normativity, of, of right and wrong. What's left for right and wrong in a, in a political conversation where people can definitely be religious, but where they can't appeal to their own particular religious notions in order to impose or propose a, a, a societal standard. What's left? Well, science. No, science is not going to give you right or wrong either. That is exactly making fun of it. But you know, we see in the COVID era uh, how making scientists into priests is also a bad idea. We have to we have to accept right. some conventional normative power. And 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 like with right, driving on the side of the road, like in America, there are Americans who say, "Look, obviously, when you're in America, you should drive on the right side of the road." But wouldn't it be smarter for us to change our convention to be driving on the left side of the road so we could be like the rest of the world? Or maybe they're more like that with the metric system. We use feet and inches. Wouldn't it be better to use meters because it would be more like the rest of the world? I'm not saying that's a good argument, but I'm saying when you think about that, you can see how just because you respect the convention doesn't mean you think there's no other normative claim to make. Okay, how does that apply to intellectual property rights and property rights more broadly? Well, to property rights more broadly, we can say clearly there are some ideas that are so bad that there's no way that that convention is going to work. For example, letting the government be able to take away people's stuff, even when they haven't committed a crime, just because it feels like it, that is a convention that is where there is no longer a property right to speak of. That's like, here's our convention, drive on any side of the road that you feel like, and if your car has a flamethrower, destroy the car in front of you, okay? And now you're speaking my language. <laughs> that's pre-modern. That's like pre-pre-modern. That's state of nature, okay? That's what that's called. So that's a bad Yeah, not, not, even, not even like the Babylonians would have been down with that. 
but it is like Dickens. Dickens has, you know, Dickens has this uh, passage in A Tale of Two Cities where, you know, like a French uh, grand duke, his his carriage rides over a peasant and breaks his legs. And he kind of, he sees them and he's like, ah, he got in my way. Ha, ha, ha. And he kind of like, I don't know if he throws a coin at his face and the like, coin hits him, like rolls away and some other peasant picks up the coin and runs away. And it's like, what, you know. But there's definitely the line, it is it is the duty of the poor to get out of the way of the rich. <laughs> and this is the, you know, sort of you know, five minutes later, they start lopping off each other's heads. Okay, so not a good convention. But should, yeah, three stories above your house, 10 stories above your house, 500 meters above your house, that kind of thing. Well, you can see how different conventions could work and how reasonable people could disagree about which convention is going to be best. But once you're in a convention, here comes a, a nice conservative impulse. You don't want to change it too much. So in the case of art, the strongest argument ended up being this. On his side, on Worrell's side, the strongest argument I would say was, look, there's this transformative power thing where we've said, if you take a photo or something like that, an image, and you create a new image, and that new image is genuinely new, like people take it seriously as being a different thing. It's recognizably different. It's not like a, an incon insignificant difference or a silly mustache. You know, if it's a silly mustache, it's a parody. Okay. Also counts as new. If you make a genuinely new thing, then you don't have to pay the original. And if you guys rule against Andy Worrell and you say he has to pay her, people are, it's going to change everything. We're not, you know, this is not to say it would be evil if in the first instance we had said you always have to pay the photographer if you're using their photograph in any way or the painter if you're scanning their painting and then making a collage on top of it or something like that. Maybe that could have been the convention, but it's not the convention. We could have ridden on the right side of the road, but we've been riding on the left side of the road. That's how the market established itself. And if you change it now, you're going to bugger everything up. That's their strongest argument. The strongest argument coming from her side is this. She says every single film made out of a book, you have to pay the original author. Every single time a musician sings another musician's song, you have to pay him for this or her for the song. Every time a DJ samples a bit of music, you have to you have to pay the sampler. So are you saying that there's no transformative genius when you turn a book into a movie? Of course there's transformative genius. Are you saying there's never a change in the meaning or message? Of course there can be. Stanley Kubrick, great example, The Shining. He's taking a book written by Stephen King. Kubrick and King both agree yeah. that the movie is not just different to the book in the sense that it's a movie of a book. They're like the aesthetics, the tones, the themes, the they're, messages. Yeah, they're fundamentally different pieces of work entirely. It's a um, different work of art. Yeah. Like while I would say that the Lord of the Rings books are are relatively good capturing of the spirit of the book. I know that Tolkien's family in general kind of hates the Peter Jackson films because they say that it transformed to such a degree that it lost the spirit of the books completely. And if you look at and and like I kind of disagree with that myself, but I'm a, I'm a softy. I'm so I'm, books are, are way better than the movie as always, you know, whatever. But I think um, even if one doubted that and you thought the family's overdoing it, um, look at the new uh, TV series coming out of the early you know pre Middle Earth Lord of the Rings stuff, 
where I mean they're changing characters, they're changing plot lines. They're 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 sort of um there's this I think I might have mentioned this wonderful article in the National Review, which which was saying I'm outraged at how they've changed the plot line. Like she, she had a whip and now she's got a sword, or she had a bow and arrow and now she's got a shield. Was that a piece by Jack Butler? Because Jack Butler is exactly the kind of guy who writes stuff like that. He's great. It's like such <laughs> a sweet, nerdy, and earnest, like you know. And this is why it changes the theme. And then I realized that, like um, you know, apparently there'd been some uh, people who were saying. You know, there's like people of different races, you know, there's like black actors, like, and they were like, oh, no, that's, um, that's obviously shouldn't be an issue, in my opinion, but we've, we've talked about that at all. Anyway, I thought it was very sweet that he was like, no, that's not, the, I'm just frustrated because I'm so angry about how I think it's portraying the book, but it's, but it's nothing to do with that. It's because she's supposed to speak Elvish and she was speaking like some other ancient language and they messed it up. Anyway, point is, as as her as her lawyer said, uh, you know, it, if changing the medium, you know, changing it from a, a photograph to a silk screen and adding some colors, that's transformative. Then changing a book into a movie is transformative. If you want to say it's more than just that, it's the it's the new message or meaning. Like the photograph made Prince look uh, personable and humble and shy and vulnerable, where and and textured, and the Andy Warhol silk screen made him look lurid and garish and confrontational and mm, out there expressive and problematize the commercial fame nature of success in America. Like if you want to say that bringing out those different themes is a thing, it was like, well, what if someone makes a movie and Darth Vader is the main character and he turns out to be a good guy? Like, does that mean they don't have to pay George Lucas rights for using uh, Darth Vader? No, of course they have to pay him the rights. And so by the same, so what they were saying is if you guys rule in favor of Worrell, you're going to have to go, and this is the Supreme Court now, you're going to rewrite the law and mean that every single book writer, every single movie writer that wants to make a movie out of a book no longer has to go and pay the the original author any fees at all as long as they make sure that there's some art critic out there who's willing to say that this was a, a, a genius transformative uh, creation and every single musician you know nancy sinatra did my baby shut me down bang 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 a dj sampled that and really changed the mood and the quality of shut me down it suddenly becomes much that guy doesn't have to pay uh, any royalties anymore so both of them their strongest arguments were not about right and wrong. They tried the right and wrong thing. The one says, oh, you're going to harm the, the photographers. They're going to lose money, the poor baby photographers. The, the Warhol guys are like, guys, if, you, if you're as a painter are going to have to go and give all your money to people whose works you're sampling from, you're going to you destroy the, the young fledgling painter artists. Right, that's the, that's the end of that, yeah. So they both got arguments and carry on. Sorry, but, carry on. But the main arguments that they both had is like, that there are these conventions and that whether whether you think this is the best convention you could ever have imagined in the first place or not, this is the convention that's here. And if you rule against Worrell, then you, <laughs> you're going to make every uh, fine artist that's played uh, a Mimi game, uh, you know, since, since the Middle Ages when they started doing this riff on it, one another stuff, uh, you're going to turn them into a nightmare. And if you rule for Worrell, you're going to uh, 
completely rewrite the rules of copyright in the music and, and film industry. So I think that that you know the libertarian, the, the, someone who wants to look into the into their navel and find a first principle, something you know abstract to the case. I don't think they have any hope of of dealing with this problem. And someone who wants to read the Quran or the Bible, maybe I don't know. I mean, those are particular texts, and and I think in a way these kinds of problems have been around. But I'll tell you, can I tell you my solution? Because I grappled with this for a while and chatted with Elena. So I think this is the solution. I think the solution is to look at, at, the, at the irony. You know, what's the thing not being said? In the 21st century, what's the word? Identity. You know, the, the, the article about Prince. The word it's of sort our of, age. It is the word of our age. And no one said it. They said, I think the closest that the two teams came was that, you know, the one extreme argument is Warhol's a genius, so it's transformative, so he doesn't have to pay. The other argument is, look, they're competing in the same space. They're both trying to sell to magazines. And so it's like musicians both trying to sell to radio or books to movies. They're both trying to, you know, sell to audience that want to hear stories. And that's where you're a copycat if you use someone else's work without paying them for it. You have to pay. Even if it is transformative and genius, you still have to pay. Even if you're Kubrick, even if you're Steven Spielberg, you still have to pay. Where they kind of started converging in the middle is like, okay, what about the particular use? Never mind the original creation, the original source screen. What about using it for the magazine? Like her photograph could have been used by Vanity Fair to depict prints. And his work was being used to depict prints. Now, on top of the depiction of prints, his work was also giving some kind of commentary, giving some other meanings. And her work, if it had been used, would have given some other commentary, some other meanings. And there's this sort of cheeky back and forth, by the way, where his lawyers say, look, you can't say that they're competing. If they are direct competition, then we are stuck with a problem where this is like book to movie. This is like films, uh, music sampling and so on. We, we would have to pay. But they're not direct competitors. You can tell because they're not market substitutes because his stuff is like a thousand times more expensive than her stuff. And because the magazines that his stuff is used in are like these highbrow magazines, art magazines, vanity fair, the magazine she's being used in is like lowbrow newsweek, much more mimetic, much more like um, dudes in the subway huffing coal and, uh, and fumes. His stuff is, <laughs> <laughs> his stuff is for highbrow snooty people like, you know, wafting the aromas of the, the florals of champagne and hibiscus gin and whatnot. So her lawyers then say, dude, think about what you're saying. You're saying there's a TV show. It like doesn't do so well. Then there's a spinoff and it goes mainstream, massive audience enjoyed by, you know, uh, the elites. It gets all the awards. They don't have to pay the original uh, that they got the spinoff from because they've done so much better that they're not even competing anymore. It's like, well, if you, if you beat me five love, you've, you've beaten me in a competition. If you beat me a hundred love, we weren't even competing. That's not how the law works. That's crazy. That's just saying might is right. Uh, they are competing. He's just much better than her. Fine, whatever, but they are competing. But what it, and, 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 and it all comes down to use because as a matter of law, the question is, was it being put to fair use? What was the use in the instance of the magazine? And 
where they are competing is they're both being used to portray Prince's likeness, his identity. But tell me this, Nick, do you own your own identity? If I take a photograph mm. of you, you know, Prince is the person you started this all by, by thinking that this is a battle between two dead dudes, lawyers, Prince <laughs> and Andy Warhol. And I was like, no, Prince right. is not part of this. That is the irony. Prince's lawyers are not part of this. Why is Prince's, why are Prince's lawyers not there saying, dude, can't you pay us money? Because you're using his face. Yes, it's like all secondhand kind of. Uh, secondhand and thirdhand. She's yeah, at secondhand, he Warhol's at thirdhand. It's but such a strange. It. It's a, it is a weird world. But I think that the principle is fairly straightforward. We live in a world where as a child, certainly in South Africa, and I think in America, certainly in the UK, you're, you do owe your own, own your own face. People can't readily capture your likeness and depict it uh, for profit or for other or for other motives. There are some yeah. special in use places. Place, in a place like the People's Republic of China, you really don't own your own face. No, but uh, even even in South Africa, dude, in the UK, I read a story about um, how I think it's when you turn nineteen, you no longer um, have copyright over your own image automatically and so young actresses or starlets that have like you know been doing well on skins or other you know uh, high school tv dramas and that have like long legs and perky boobs and stuff dude on their 19th birthday the british paparazzi who like are the scum of the earth will yes, go I've, live. Seen, I've seen the photos of them all lying on the ground trying to take photos on the pavement like, like outside Emma, of Emma the club. skirt yeah yes trying to take photos up her skirt as she comes out the first time after midnight because the, you know the first person to to um, to sully someone in that kind of way, sell the image, uh, is going to get the most money out of it. So if, you, if you're if you outside uh, and someone takes your photo, you don't own that. Um, you, you know, that person can sell your photo for as much as they want. And think about what the alternative would be. It would be a nightmare. Your your likeness and your well, name. We, we we know we know what the alternative looks like, which is that uh, if you are a British person and you go to a kids' sports day, and you want to take photos of your child performing in, in sports day, you will have to get permission of every single parent in the vicinity in writing in order to be able to take a single photo of your child, if anyone else could possibly be in the same photograph. Yeah, it's a nightmare, and so and 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 it's it, the reference to China is interesting because it is precisely the commons. Uh, what you know, what happens with with Bach's music is that it has entered the commons. That means it's fair use for anyone as long as they aren't somehow harming the intellectual property. Likewise, your image is fair use for anyone once you hit the age of majority, as long as people aren't you know deliberately. Uh, contorting things to slander you or to incite violence against you or to degrade your humanity. And even their courts are very reluctant to sort of hold back. So, and, and that's the system that works. So my thought is that uh, if a cartoonist, my interpretation of how to solve this case is to put it like this. Let's say a cartoonist, Zapiro, I've listened to Zapiro online, whatever his real name is. Um, describe his process. And he has said, like, sometimes it's really hard to get access to good images. And before the internet, it is even harder. So he has to do a cartoon of Bill Clinton. Okay, there's quite a lot of images around. He has to do a cartoon of, of Gaddafi in 1989 or whatever it is. It's very hard to find. So he finds one image. 
And he uses that image as his inspiration to do a cartoon. And in the cartoon, Gaddafi's in a different pose and he's doing a different thing. Should he have to pay the photographer for the right to use that photograph uh, uh, as, as uh, source material for his cartoon? Absolutely not. Why? Because the only purpose, the primary purpose, and almost the exhaustive purpose for which he's using the photograph is to capture the likeness of Muammar, of Gaddafi. And Gaddafi's likeness, his identity in a visual sense, is already common property. That's already in the comments. That goes into the comments the moment that is uh, you hit the image of majority. The same for your name. When I was at school, there used to be a, a, a line from the working class kids about like, that guy thinks he's so rich or he's so fancy that he can charge us to say his name. That's an example of, of, of property line. rights gone mad. So you can't, you don't have to pay Prince to say Prince. Um, and likewise, you don't have to pay Prince to use his likeness, nor do you have to pay the, the photographer uh, whose image you're using to generate his likeness. I'm not saying it's a, not a nice idea to sometimes do it, especially if there's something you're using out of it. And by the way, if the photographer had Prince in a special pose, looking over his shoulder, his butt crack exposed, a swastika on his ass, a rose crawling up his back and then turning into an octopus eating a, a Christian cross that was made out of tiny little Muslim, uh, you know, stars and sickles and communist rain coming down in the color purple, sort of bleeding into an ocean that then surrounds the <laughs> Man, acid is one hell of a drug. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm saying if the artist has made it, if the photographer has really drawn on him and arranged objects in the room and such like in a really uh, uh, characteristic kind of way, a way that really stands out. And then you take a, you takes a photograph of that. And then you as an artist use that. And you're not just capturing his likeness. You're capturing that image, that same pose with those same symbols and gestures and so on. Then I think you should pay the photographer because the photographer is not just giving you the likeness, which is a really common property. They're giving you much more than that. And that's not common property. Okay. So how does this help for the film to movie and for the songs? Well, if you sing Billie Jean, and I'm sure you would sing it beautifully, Nick. Uh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it's still Billie Jean. It's still about Billie Jean. But even if the name, even if the song isn't about a character, the song has a name. It has an identity. Identity is that which survives through change and survives particularly in our common competent concept, our ability to re-identify it. This is why um, I think uh, property rights, uh, yeah, pre-modern, modern, post-modern, post -modern, th there are concepts that we've all had competencies about, like property. Children understand what mine and yours is. And, uh, and sometimes we then invent maybe myths religious stories, naturalistic stories, scientific stories, to try and justify it. Yeah, the king, we know who's in charge, it's the king. And we invent a story of why he's in charge. But we share the competency of being able to identify who's in charge. And we share the competency of being able to say, this is the same song. It's Something's changed about it, but it's still the same song. It's still Billie Jean. The identity of a non-person that's been artificially created, that is copyrighted from the moment it's created. Likewise, Frodo, Bilbo Baggins, uh, Gandalf, Harry Potter, Hermione Granger, Jack the dude at the top of the hill in that weird uh, hotel with the scary little girl. You know, these 
characters Sorry, that are created. What was that last one? From The Shining. The Shining. Oh, 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 oh okay. okay. <laughs> Jack, Jack and Jill yeah, went up okay. the Jack, hill. Jack Nicholson, yes, yes, yes. But not Jack Nicholson. The character in The Shining is also called Jack. Yeah, yeah, But I yes, Jack Nicholson's character. These characters have names. Darth Vader. The reason you have to pay Lucas Films for using Darth Vader, even if he becomes a good guy, is because it's the same character. So it's the same identity. It's the same identity. How? I'm identifying him as Darth Vader before and after. How do I identify him? By his name, by his voice, by his cloak. Oh, well, you can change a little bit of these things. But if we can still identify him, then you haven't changed it enough for it to be your own thing. It's still someone else's creation. So there are two kinds of things you can identify. Persons, and persons' identities just turn out to be unownable. They're common property or they're banned from use. Just like you can't own slaves, you can't own your own name or someone else's name. But brands, artificial identities, can be owned. And by reflecting on that simple difference, I think instead of having to choose between like buggering all of, you know, redoing the convention on the one side or redoing the convention on the other side, we can be like, no, just keep going the way we're going. If you use a photographer's work merely to capture a likeness, then you don't have to pay the photographer because all that you're getting out of it is the likeness. And that was common property in the first place. But if you're using an identity that was artificially created and that is copyrighted, that's not common property, that's private property, like Frodo, uh, which belongs to the Tolkien estate, then you got to pay. Okay, so I think I solved this mystery. Um, well, we'll see if the Supreme Court agrees. <laughs> we'll find out. Well, now, now we're going to see if the Supreme Court is as smart as me. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> uh, yes, it remains or, to be seen. Look, or, or, or smarter. I mean, it'll be interesting to see if I've if I've totally missed the boat. I'll say one other thing about the case, which was kind of. I mean, it was amazing to hear. Their questions are so good. And even though they didn't bring up the identity thing, I mean, there, there, there is a lot of technique and technicality about it. Um, I did feel really awkward because we spoke about Judge Jackson, the Biden's right. latest appointment. Dude, there's such an awkward passage there where she just doesn't make any sense. Mm. It felt so cringe, man. I felt very... <laughs> like she starts out, the first thing she says is like, um, she starts out very self-deprecating. She's like, I'm not sure if I'm making this up, but wasn't there something in the original copyright law about that is relevant in this case about necessity and necessity requirement? Uh, like if you need to use this, there's only one photograph left of this person. Then it's different to if you could have chosen between this and that one, and it's a choice rather than a necessity to go after this particular source material. Anyway, she asked, is it just me or like, wasn't there something in the history of the making of the law where they talked about putting this in, in Congress and then they took, and then they didn't put it in, which would make the absence seem more deliberate. And then you can read into the absence more. Right. Right. But the lawyer's like, no, there wasn't. And then judge Jackson, justice Jackson's like, oh, I guess I must've made it up. Why? But that's not huh? at all the worst. Okay, that's a like rookie error. Something went wrong there. Then she gets into this question. I don't. I don't want to rehearse it. But it was, it's like it's for two pages. Like she's got the lawyer asking her questions. Like, I'm sorry, Justice Jackson. Are you asking whether you we want you to agree with us? Because the answer is yes. <laughs> and like 
she's asking that back to the judge because that is what the judge just asked. Hmm. Ah, and it feels like she just look. I think that she was flustered. Maybe she's a bit nervous. It's it's very early days for her. I wanted to do well. It's the most amazing court. I love that court. Um, and I think that she, she oddly enough didn't have a very pressurized um, introduction compared to Kavanaugh and Amy Connor Barrett. But I think compared to how it should be, she did have a pretty um, bruising induction. Yes. Uh, and so maybe has some, uh, you know, decent reason to feel a bit rattled. And um, anyway, so I hope I hope she comes right. But it is like it was the first one that I listened to, and then the second one I listened to, Gertz versus Reed, on this interesting case where this dude was accused of murdering this nineteen-year-old uh, that he was, you know, he was basically sleeping with her. They were having an illicit affair on his version, um, and on his version her boyfriend kind of discovers this and kills her. And her boyfriend was a cop and he's black and they're white. And so there's sort of by implication, a bit of a, an issue with that. Weird race but, thing, yeah. but on the government's version, I mean, they found hard evidence showing that he murdered her, that he, that he just, he broke into this woman's room, never met her before, uh, rapes her and, uh, and then kills her. And I think initially when he speaks to the cop, he's, he's he says, no, I don't know her. He denies ever. And then they find his semen inside of her dead body. Um, and they're like, well, why are we finding it? And he's like, oh, well, I guess she's my girlfriend. Like he starts, you know, anyway. So I haven't read the original case. He's been found guilty by a jury of his peers. Um, uh, because it's a capital crime, there's an automatic appeal process. The appeal process has gone through. He's been found guilty on that basis. So, you know, the, pretty sure he's guilty. Um, but maybe, maybe, maybe he's asking for review of DNA evidence. And he's been refused. They said you can do DNA tests on some of the stuff. He's basically saying, you know, uh, you're going to find my DNA all over not only her room, but like other places, you know, to show that he's right. been visiting for weeks or since. Yeah, or something. that they had a relationship, right. And that would exonerate him. Um, and, and the prosecuting attorney said, okay, yes, for some of that stuff, but no for some of that stuff, because some of that stuff has been passed around by the jury. Like the jurors have literally held it in their hands. <laughs> they, ah. They they're allowed to examine it. That's not great. In, yeah. So so they're like it's been contaminated, and there's a law to say, you know, um, we don't um, submit evidence in appellate uh, review where the chain of custody has been broken. And one way to break the chain of custody is that look, we always knew where it was. Obviously, in where to break chain of custody is, we don't know where it was for two weeks last year. And it's like, well, then the evidence is useless because maybe it has stolen someone. <laughs> Another way to break chain of custody is like, we know where it was, but it was contaminated. Um, and in the course of, and it's like, well, then you're like, how specific is DNA? Could it have been so contaminated? Isn't it just going to have other people's extra DNA? It's not going to have his, could his have gotten on on there? So I'm, I'm not sure exactly. Maybe it was passed around in court. Maybe he held it. Maybe he was asked to hold some of the stuff while he was on the stand like O.J. Simpson was asked to hold the gloves um, that had been submitted as evidence in that famous screw-up. I, I, 
So obviously I was too young when that case happened, but <laughs> just reading a, just reading about it, uh, I, for some reason I read about it in the middle of the night a while ago. And good Lord, <laughs> what a know? disaster. What a bugger up. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> but so in this case, it looks like there's been a bit of a bugger up. And, and the case is not really about that. The case is about, it's such a weird thing, dude. It's about the timing. It's about when the statute of limitations on submitting a certain kind of complaint starts and when it ends. And this is the kind of case where if it ever gets, I mean, it's already been reported a little bit, depending on how the ruling goes, the New York times or whatnot, they're going to say, you know, like black dude gets denied a final review in sort of death row case by Trump appointed conservative court, or they're going to say Supreme court, uh, gives, uh, gives Reed a last chance by, uh, uh, chastising, uh, right wing Texas court for earlier refusing, a uh, yes. uh, uh, double testing on the DNA, uh, or reviewed DNA testing on, on the old evidence. It, no one's going to get into what that's not what the case is about. The case is about this very technical question of whether you can file a review application against a decision made by a court at the state level into a federal appellate division before the state court has made its final determination. So it's decided this thing. No, you can't um, get this evidence, but it hasn't decided the whole case. Can you file your appeal halfway through the court process? And it's like, if you just think about that question, of course, there's a lot of reasons you want to file an appeal halfway through the process. If you're saying we need this evidence and the court says you can't have it, it's been contaminated. You don't want to keep waiting for the rest of the process. You're like, yeah, we've got another year to go through this process, but we know we're going to lose because the rest of the stuff, like there's a 1% chance we're going to, we want to file our appeal now. But on the other hand, it's like, hold on. If you can file your appeal now, you're going to be sitting in a position where you've changed the rules so that people can always be fighting in two courts at the same time. And the higher courts are going to say, we don't know the full reasoning given for this decision because the opinion only comes with the judgment. And we are going to be asked to review a judgment without the opinion that substantiates it. So you can file an application to us but either we have to decide to overrule a lower court without knowing its reasoning, which seems crazy, or we're going to have to stay your application. In other words, put a pause in it until, <laughs> until the original thing is fixed in the first place. But that's going to mean that the clock on the statute of limitations starts much earlier, which has very bad second order effects. So there's no good option. It's all bad options. Why? Partly because these cases drag on for years. None of this, do you have to wait till the end or, 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 or can you start halfway through? You know, if it's like three weeks versus six weeks, it's not making a difference. But if it's like three years versus six years because the state level court thing can take six years, then it makes a huge difference. So it's like none of this is, it's all a nightmare of trying to like figure out um, whether to, how to order a very, very technical timing issue under the constraints of nothing is actually going to be good enough to hit the desiderator that you're trying to satisfy. And I find listening to an hour and a half of a bunch of smart justices drilling a bunch of smart lawyers who've been thinking about this thing for the last five years, 
ex- exquisite. It's just stimulating. Oh, it is exactly what it is. And it's so far from like, are you a libertarian or are you a socialist? Do you want less government or more government? Do you want to like, you know, milk the rich or do you think that the poor are too incentivized to, you know, stay at home and be lazy and, and need a bit more incentives to go out and make money? Like the, the you know, do you think Trump's a racist or do you think he's a hero? <laughs> whatever these, whatever these like, like stupid team sports, like are you for Manchester yes. United or Man City? Like those, those games by the time you're and again it's because the con it's because you're weighing up different conventions you're trying to see what convention is better you know what would be the best judgment this is now going to set a rule that gets applied across cases this sets the new convention left side of the road right side of the road what's the current convention and not just which convention would be better but which convention costs the least to get to because it might turn out that the better convention is impossible to get to uh, without ruining everything, without being a fallist. Like trying to triangulate those things suddenly makes every exercise, every five minutes kind of change one's mind again. Like, oh, now I'm on this side. Now I'm on that side. Now I'm on this side. Now I'm on that side. Now I've finished it and I don't know. And I'm going to think about it a day to try and figure out what I think is I'm trying to work out that, yeah, what my point of view is. Oh, yeah, it's such a nice no, thing, isn't it nice to to think rather than to play team sports? <laughs> I really, I think so, man. I <laughs> now and then it's nice to go mad and watch the Springboks, you know. Yeah, but that's because it's people. It's it's not. It's got nothing to do with anyone's actual lives. It's just a bunch of people throwing a <laughs> ball around. It's like as yes. inconsequential as you can possibly get. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. Yes. Ah, <laughs> uh, anyway, let's let's let's. Uh, anyway, let's yes. um, I've 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 spilled at you very hard, Nick. I appreciate your uh, no, no, I, I, as you know, as you know, my um, I am not. I don't have a particularly enlightened view when it comes to courts in general. Being a uh, a primitive man, you know, I like monkey see, monkey do. I like uh, when the law says thing bad, and then we just have thing bad rather than 14 million exceptions. But yes, I do still like the Supreme Court, despite my my backwards opinions on the law. Um, recommendations. I have two. Can I start? Please, yeah. My first recommendation is, <laughs> and we really aren't sponsored, we buy cars. Just sold a car for them. It was so pleasant and easy. It was an old garbage car. It would have taken forever to find a buyer myself. And I'm just very pleased that uh, I was able to to get that. Dude, that's done. amazing. I like that. Yeah. Uh, it was like an hour and a half of my time in total, and I sold a car. What was that? That doesn't. Did you? Yeah, that, that old Vol- that Volvo. Yeah, that old Volvo. Um, that car, by the way, it's, it was a 1998 model. It was the car I went to school on my first day, and it was mm. like my main car that I drove as an adult. So it was a little bit sad seeing it go. Yeah, that is a sad. I feel kind of sad. I remember you took me to McDonald's a few times in that car. Oh, yeah. Now that, that car's been to McDonald's many a time. <laughs> uh, sometimes, and like, he, sometimes after a few years. It, yes. <laughs> yes. So sometimes I uh, hope that one day someone will purchase it and also use it to go to McDonald's. Um, but uh, so that's my first recommendation. Um, it's 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 like living in the future. It's an organ. Imagine selling a car, but you have to do almost no paperwork. They do it mostly all for you. Um, magic. 
I'm Secondly, BB King, blues musician. Oh. Gabriel linked me a a a a, a, a image, uh, a video of BB King snapping a guitar string in the middle of a performance, and then restringing it on the spot and getting back into the groove, which is great. But it sent me down a train of just watching BB King music, which is this tons of it on YouTube. Blues and, train. Oof, just lovely, smooth, wonderful, brilliant, energetic, beautiful music. Just love it. It really sets my soul in a good place. So I mm. would recommend. Yeah, I'm feeling that. And, and I, yeah, I think like some of the other music recommendations we've made, it's like not necessarily happy music, eh? But no, no. Every song is about how his, his girlfriend has upset at him and is threatening to either uh, leave him, uh, throw something at him, or, or, or set the house <laughs> on fire. And yet, at the same time, it continues to be strangely jubilant. Mm, mm, <laughs> mm. I dig it. I really do. Life, man. Life's not always easy, but oh, can be meaningful. I, I want to recommend... I, I must, I suppose, recommend um, the Vanity Fair article, and it is uh, ha available for free on their website, so we can pop the link. There's a nice sort of uh, little twist in the question about free, free to access and whatnot. Um, I also want to link another article that made an impression on me this week. I had a really tough week um, in terms of just... Uh, Thinking about standards, um, st sort of professional standards, and and uh, what it's you know what it's like when when standards are not being lived up to, um, and almost as if uh, Google was reading my mind, I got this Financial Times article uh, about feedback, written by the deputy editor of the, of the weekend edition of the Financial Times. And basically, this this writer, this journalist, goes and speaks to professors and psychologists, but particularly um, academics who have tried to understand whether it helps to criticize other people, and how to criticize other people, and how to accept other people's criticism. Uh, because there's like a lot of bromides, you know. There's a lot of like home truths, like you know, it's important to tell people, give people feedback. Critical feedback is critical to growth and development and so on. Ooh, and then you get into some studies that are just like, maybe, maybe, even if it's very well-intentioned, like people are such, in general, arrogant pricks. Um, <laughs> that pointing on their mistakes just doesn't help. <laughs> and, and anyway, so there's this three-part journey and, and, you know, part A of the journey is like a beautiful disquisition of why it seems like feedback's a good idea. And then the sort of antithesis of like, well, why maybe even the best uh, intentioned and most skillfully executed feedback doesn't work. And then there's this sort of Hegelian twist um, that comes out of that. And I won't spoil it because I think it's, I think it's worth reading. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's pretty, I guess it's all pretty obvious in the rear view mirror. Um, but I'm a strong believer in the obvious now and then. Uh, I think that often 
Tolstoy is right. You know, uh, Anna Karenina starts out with the thought that every happy family is is kind of the same. It's the unhappy families that are all break break down in their own special way. Like sometimes failure is fascinating because of its infinite variety, um, and like a wheel is round, and so is every other wheel because it's obvious like what the, what the right shape is to perform the function of a wheel. Um, someone someone invented working squ- square wheels, I think, or, or sort of quad, quadrangle wheels. <laughs> I, so, know those I don't know, hey. I know <laughs> dude, there's, oh, man, there's like five. Dude, if you want to cruise around YouTube, there, there are, um, yeah, what do you call them? Radial, basically shapes where the, where the, the distance from the, there's this kind of radial equilibrium despite the fact that um, the the outward shape is not round um, because it fits inside a shape where – so the diameter is always the same, but the radius is not always the same. But that can work for certain things. But then there's another five videos of, of YouTube engin- of engineers being like, Dude, this is why this doesn't work. I mean, it looks pretty and it works <laughs> for certain very limited uses in the same way as wheels, but it's <laughs> – it's uh it's a bugger up if you try and get the general application anyway um even if it even if it does work it's it's sort of still a very narrow subset of all of all the cases anyway, that's my recommendation and enjoy enjoy yeah i encourage people to enjoy the obvious now and then good stuff all right uh and with that i think We'll call it to a close. It is Friday afternoon, and it is time, I think, for us to go off and do weekend things. Uh, and with that in mind, I hope that you all keep the flag of liberty flying in these hot uh, late spring, early summer days. And uh, have a wonderful weekend. Keep the flag of liberty flying. Grr, grr.